Welcome to Rapham Focus, a podcast devoted to exploring the provocative and impactful aspects of the research published in Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine. Here, we'll make sure to discuss and debate the findings that matter most for clinicians, patients, and policymakers. I'm Brian Seitz, Editor-in-Chief. I am an anesthesiologist and professor at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. At Rapham, we believe well-done pain medicine improves health and well-being. I'll work to keep the discussion relevant and factual. Thanks for joining us. Let's get started. What I love about perioperative medicine is that physicians are constantly innovating, studying, and applying data to real-life decision-making. This is especially true in acute pain management, as evidenced by the plethora of new fascial plane blocks, ERAS protocols, polypharmacy, and even the strategic use of buprenorphine. In terms of systemic lidocaine, the analgesic effects of systemic lidocaine are well recognized, but what is novel is the application of this therapy in an environment once thought to be inappropriate, that is, in the general inpatient units. For anyone who has labored and struggled through establishing new clinical pathways, like ketamine infusions on the floor, we stand in solidarity with you in regard to the superhuman effort that is often needed to accomplish change in a complex health system. Today, we're joined by Megan Miller and Brian Allen. Megan Miller graduated from the University of Alabama with her bachelor's in nursing in 2012. She was then accepted into Vanderbilt University Medical Center Nurse Residency Program and joined the colorectal and general surgery floor, which sparked her interest in enhanced recovery after surgery, as it was the first floor to initiate lidocaine infusions outside of the ICU. She has her master's in nursing science in adult gerontology acute care nurse practitioner and first assist. Brian Allen is an associate professor at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, where he directs the fellowship in regional anesthesiology and acute pain medicine. He completed undergraduate in medical school at Washington University. He was a resident at Vanderbilt and did his regional fellowship at OHSU before returning to join the Vanderbilt faculty. His clinical focus is on regional and multimodal analgesia in ERAS pathways. His research interests include educational assessment, evaluating ERAS efficiency, efficacy and compliance, and opioid minimization. Megan and Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. We are excited to discuss our research with you and our listeners. Thank you so much. Last year, Megan and Brian were co-researchers in a university-based study examining the safety of lidocaine infusions on the routine wards. To start things off, uh, Brian and Megan, can you can you tell us a little bit about the background story of why your group thinks that systemic lidocaine would be a good analgesic option for some patients in your practice, in contrast to, let's say, other modalities that are typically uh, used? So multiple studies have shown a benefit from lidocaine infusions from improving pain control, reducing in-hospital opioid use, and resulting in earlier return of bowel function, and ultimately reduced length of hospital stay. Tennessee is third in the country for prescription drug use, and according to our state data, 70,000 Tennesseans are addicted to opioids. We wanted to do our part by limiting opioid prescriptions that go out into our community, which means less opioids during their hospital stay. And I'm kind of curious um, uh, to get your thoughts on how you evolved your position from kind of the more standard approaches of, of polypharmacy uh, using uh, other non-opioid-based uh, analgesics, regional anesthesia, into using systemic lidocaine infusions, because it's kind of a big leap um, given that, you know, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later in the in the podcast, but how many 
you know, logistical steps must, must have had to been overcome to get to get your your dream a reality. But, but was there like a moment where your group said, hey, what we're doing is not good enough and we really want to kind of push the limits to uh, to add this modality? Kind of curious to, to know how that happened, because everybody probably has their own story at their own institution of like what set them, you know, over the edge to say, I'm doing this. I'm going to build a program. Well, we had uh, we were initiating a perioperative consult service, which is sort of like an acute pain service, but with a little bit of a different focus, um, focused around things that are a little bit broader than typical anesthesiologists would be involved in or typical acute pain service would be involved in. Um, thinking of really trying to include all those enhanced recovery elements um, that that had been studied elsewhere. And so as part of that bundle, there's a really deep partnership with our colorectal group. And we had a time where we were exploring what options and avenues were good for analgesia. And there'd been studies around lidocaine enhancing both analgesia and return of bowel function. And so really the return of bowel function um, that can help facilitate earlier ambulation and earlier hospital discharge was one of the pieces that really flagged it for inclusion. We started our enhanced recovery pathway with our colorectal friends in 2014 and knew that lidocaine needed to be part of the bundle, but, but the logistical work to get that up and running safely on the floors took uh, additional time. And we can talk about those logistical steps that it took. Sure. That's great. And, and, and Megan, did, was, as a nurse uh, caring for patients on the floor when you first had that exposure, uh, did, did you become kind of a believer when you saw some of the effects that, uh, that, that were going on with, with some of those patients? Yeah, absolutely. So when I first started um, with the colorectal surgery um, patients and being on that floor, um, every patient had a, either a dilated or a morphine PCA. And that really, you know, um, extended their length uh, of stay in the hospital. And then when we started um, adding ERAS and the periop team was created and started rounding on these patients, we saw such a night and day difference between, you know, early ambulation, people not having to rely on PCAs. I mean, we've pretty much abolished PCA culture um, within our perioperative consult service. And it was such a rewarding experience to see how of like the great work we were doing with ERAS and our involvement. It's great to have the, that experience of the kind of boots on the ground to, to uh, you know, assess the efficacy of treatment. And, and, I, and I'm also curious, was there like one enthusiast or I don't know what the right term is, maybe um, advocate that was most aggressive? Uh, it, it, was that a, someone on the anesthesia team or the surgery team or did it just kind of organically evolve all together? So so often it takes like one person that like this is my thing I'm going to get this done. Did, did that that occur? Did that occur with your team at all? We have um, uh, our our perioperative service uh, lead um, is an anesthesiologist Matt McAvoy, and he really has done a lot of publishing and interest in in this space. He partnered really tightly and closely with our our head of colorectal surgery Tim Geiger, and they really went out and got resources and really described ahead of time what needed to happen to really make a culture change from somewhere that, that we were not doing amazing with. Um, the, the initial impetus had to, for our enhanced recovery had to do with um, wound infection rates being a little below the national average, other things being a little higher. And so they really took a, um, 
Tim and Matt took a really tight look at all of the aspects around care. And those things included what multimodals uh, analgesics we were using, PCA usage, uh, how there were four different ways to do a bowel anastomosis at, at Vanderbilt before the enhanced recovery and that uh, pathway took took effect. And then afterwards, there was only one way to do a bowel anastomosis. So the residents who were learning on service didn't have to do things in heterogeneous ways. Patients were supposed to get up three times a day. That culture was changed uh, on the on the nursing side. So we call them uh, service line champions. Yeah, that's the word I was at, champions. Yeah, that's a great description. And, and and I think you need I think you need those people. And I think as you point out, a collaboration with the surgeons is is key. And, uh, it, it, you know, like I always have a saying I share with the residents, uh, I'm at the point in my career that I want to, you know, partner with the people who want to partner with me <laughs> and, uh, and goes, and so if you have that relationship, it's, it's fantastic. Now I wanted to ask you both, if you had a chance to, uh, read one of the, uh, a really provocative study that we publish in Rapham, uh, by, uh, Neil Hansen examining IV lidocaine versus tap block for kidney transplant surgery. Cause it actually is a nice kind of background, um, discussion a little bit about about uh this this uh this therapy and it's, it's provocative because it goes head to head against a, a peripheral nerve block and and uh and, and they found that you know it was a non-inferior essentially so you know a lot of people got uh, kind of jazzed up about that because it's it it, it it introduces a lot of questions right and i think uh it'd be nice to get your guys thoughts on on that study i, th- I think it's a very interesting study it um it was looked like a non-inferiority trial, and they did about 120 patients included in it. Their their lidocaine infusion rates were pretty similar to ours. So think, looking at it, I was thinking about how it, how it reflects our practice at, at, at Vanderbilt. Uh, their infusion rates were pretty similar to ours. Um, we usually run lidocaine for about 24 hours. They ran for up to 48. So, so a little, little differences there. Um, and just interestingly, I think it's sort of another tool in the toolbox to have. So it's sort of liberating in that you can customize a little bit that your analgesic plan for what works for your institution. So if, if cat blocks are going to be something that's easier for you to put into effect than or lidocaine, um, you're not going to be inferior if you're if it's easier for you to do infusions of lidocaine logistically than it is to do tap blocks, then you're really not doing the patients a disservice by going that route as well. So I think it's, I think it allows some customization, um, in, at an, at each institution. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that, Megan? Um, I think it, and it, um, similar to what Dr. Allen said, it doesn't have to be an either or situation. I mean, we have, um, uh, kidney transplant patients that get tap blocks and lidocaine. So I think that is also, um, great as well. Um, a great benefit for our patients. You know, it's really interesting to me, though, to think a little bit about um, the current controversy around fascial plane blocks and mechanisms with the with that study, and it kind of it kind of extends into your work. So, so, so there's we're kind of in a new era of of regional anesthesia where people are putting. And this is not necessarily true for tap blocks, but people are putting local anesthetic. Uh, drugs into anatomical planes where there are no named nerves. <laughs> and the proposed mechanism is based on that drug going somewhere important. And we've had a lot of, um, you know, charged discussion in, in the Rapham uh, community about what 
what's really going on. You've got one group that says it's nothing more than a systemic absorption of a high dose of local anesthetic doing its magic, like 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 an IV lidocaine infusion. Others are saying no, this is a this is a real nerve block, and there's real nerves being blocked, and and, and that debate still rages on. Um, and I think that uh, um, the the Neil Hansen study was was kind of provocative because at least it got some data out there to say, hey, you know, the difference may not be large, but I'm I'm just kind of like it's just kind of interesting because it overlaps in you know with with your work. Honestly, I thought a little bit about the Regain trial that came out last last year that we were involved a little bit where they looked at spinal versus general for hip fracture patients and and really didn't show an advantage in kind of ambulation at, at 60 days it doesn't to me saying that two treatments don't have a defined difference between them in, in terms of efficacy or your outcome doesn't mean that you shouldn't do either or that uh one is worse than the other it's that you know either of those what you can if you can work on it at your institution to to do it uh, in a safe and effective way, either of those treatments is an acceptable option, and so it allows you to kind of do things at your institution. And so that's that's what's interesting to me. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, and and, and also there's this issue of external validity. What what may work at one institution may not work at at another. So no, it's good stuff. It's just it's just interesting to think about these mechanisms because, and we're gonna we're gonna cover that in just a second. I think you've already alluded to this, um, but when you reflect back on this project, and we're going to, just before we get into the results of your study, when you reflect um, back on this project, um, what, what, do you have any like practical tips uh, for other eager anesthesiologists or nurses, APS nurses who want to undertake something like this in terms of how you even start? Uh, and because sometimes it just seems so you know, daunting. So I think the biggest obstacle for me about establishing a new infusion therapy is realizing it takes a large number of individuals and various teams to make a protocol happen. Um, I'm going to kind of go into a small amount of the details um, of what we did to help establish um, our protocol, um, but we needed P&T, so pharmacy and therapeutics approval, that our protocol was safe. And so we created an SOP. A standard operating protocol for a pilot trial. Um, like we mentioned previously, our pilot was on one floor, a colorectal surgery floor, where we provided education to all the nurses about monitoring system for lidocaine toxicity and last management. And we precipitated our challenges here um, about increasing education materials early for the nurses. And I think this could have been a bigger challenge for us if we didn't address that education as much as we did from the beginning. Um, we created a visual aid and a version of a pocket card so the nurses could use it at, as a quick reference. Uh, we made nurses service line champions, so someone who was dedicated to seeing the project through to make it successful. Um, we also created an interactive annual competency of our protocol via Vanderbilt's education portal, what that is still an ongoing requirement today. We posted our anesthesia pager and phone number all across the unit um, so the nurses knew the best way to get a hold of us um, if any problems were to arise. Um, someone else we worked very closely with was our service center and pharmacy colleagues ensure that portless tubing intralipid was stocked on the unit. Um, and after about that six-month trial, we were happy to report 
no incidents of lidocaine toxicity had occurred. Um, after proving our pilot did not cause harm, we expended it to other surgical services, completed the same education to those nurses. We stocked each floor with pocket cards, portless tubing, and intralipid. Um, and we had no evidence of lidocaine toxicity after the expansion to those floors. Finally, we took our um, proposed SOP back to the Pharmacy and Therapeutics um, Committee for approval. In addition to their approval, we had several other committees that had to approve our SOP. Um, and it takes time for each one of those committees to give us their approval. So I think that part, um, just the waiting game, was a little challenging as well. Oh, well, thank you for that comprehensive answer. I think that's that's that the, the, your comments are worth gold for a lot of people trying to do this. And 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 I and I, Brian, I don't want you to um, to, to hold back anything, but like I think, and and and, and we're going to give you a lot of accolades, Megan. But I think it's critical to have a nurse on the APS team be part of that um, that champion process with the floor nurses. We have two, uh, three, sorry, three APS nurses, and all of our progress is based on their ability to to like relate, communicate with their colleagues on the floor. And I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Brian, but that that's I think huge. And so I think you're very lucky to have had that relationship with the nursing. That's that's reflected in kind of how how our institution is set up and how many institutions are set up. Our perioperative sur surgical services area is run by kind of anesthesia, surgery, and nursing kind of in a tripartite shared responsibility model. And if you're, if you want to do something around a surgery and you don't have a surgeon involved, um, you, you're going to have a harder time. If you want to do something around the nursing practice and you don't have uh, nursing representation, you're going to have a hard time. And, and probably rightly so. Um, we can sometimes feel like we want to change something as anesthesiologists we want to change something and see it done and it happen right now. And I think that that attitude can create a lot of pushback, whereas the longer term, if somebody refers to it as orthodontics, uh, slow, constant pressure over time um, and getting buy-in and getting stakeholders is really, really important and will set you up for success in a way that, you know, um, starting with an idea and just just running out the gate with it before some planning will 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 set you up for disappointment often. Uh, let's get into some of the good stuff. Can you guys tell us a little bit about your lidocaine infusion protocol at Vanderbilt? Like, how do you select patients? What are you, what what do you consider the contraindications? Your dosing duration and monitoring. We screen patients. Everybody who's coming in for surgery on on one of our enhanced recovery protocol pathways that includes lidocaine, which includes most colorectal surgical oncology, um, bariatric surgery patients that we've, we've scaled back our use of lidocaine um, overnight in, in those patients because they do so well. Um, all of them get seen by someone on the, the perioperative consult service on the day of surgery. So we're seeing them right when they show up for surgery. Uh, we're screening them. Then we're, we write consult notes on everyone. And then we, we um, prescribe kind of an analgesic plan that's a, that's, Protocolized, but also tailored to, to individual differences. And so those uh, those contraindications might be allergy to lidocaine, which is pretty rare, um, unstable cardiac disease, severe electrolyte uh, abnormalities, or if they're on antiarrhythmics um, or um, sodium channel blocking agents already, such as amiodarone. Um, severe liver disease um, was also a contraindication. 
those patients, which ends up being a pretty narrow um, group, except for uh, seizure disorder, which which we come across occasionally, uh, were eligible to receive lidocaine infusions. Are you getting consulted as an APS service uh, for a complicated case, or is are these patients rolling out of the operating room on the infusion and per per protocol? ERAS, you just continue it? Like, how, how does that work? So we actually have both. Um, like Dr. Allen mentioned earlier, um, we have that perioc consult service, which is uh, basically we have protocols with various surgical teams where we basically provide a multimodal uh, approach to pain, which includes, includes the lidocaine infusion. So those patients in particular, uh, when they come out of the PACU, those infusions will be started, started by the bedside nurse in the PACU. Um, as for acute pain um, consults, um, those infusions are often started on the floor by the bedside nurse there. Okay, so it's a little mix of everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so practically, if you come in with for an elective um, low anterior resection mm-hmm. um, or colorectal surgery, you'll get seen, you'll get preoperative oral analgesics, you'll go intraoperatively, get some abdominal wall blocks. There will be uh, after induction of anesthesia, then you'll get a lidocaine infusion interoperatively. That'll be suspended at the end of the case until you get to PACU where it'll be restarted and then continue out onto the floor for uh, 24 hours duration of the lidocaine infusion. And currently we're doing 20, uh, 48 hours of, of ketamine infusion for patients who are going to stay two nights or, or more. Wow. So you, you bring out the, you can do two infusions on the floor. Wow. That's that's remarkable, and it's uh, so you bring out the big guns right away as part of a whole process. That's 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 spectacular. Absolutely, and we've we've published in the the space around uh, numerous decreases in complication rates and earlier return of bowel function, earlier hospital discharge, and then the most striking was the uh, essentially everyone having PCAs, and then after the after the perioperative consult service, almost no one having. Uh, opioid PCAs on the floor at all. That that was one of the striking elements. Do you have any concerns about a large bolus, you know, peripheral nerve block and then starting a lidocaine infusion? That's maybe the question I've gotten most from from colleagues is um, you're doing tap blocks and then you're doing, and then you're starting a lidocaine infusion. Um, we haven't had any issues around it. It's been, um, the patient's under anesthesia. So in theory, any seizure activity you really would, would not see. Um, we haven't had any issues around cardiac toxicity. And what we've um, what we've done is really reduced to um, ropivacaine 0.25%, our, our abdominal wall block um, okay. kind of recipe. And maybe uh, maybe with the, the recent publication in RAPM, uh, you could even skip the the uh, the tap block possibly if there if there was concerns, but um, all right, cool. Um, now, I want to just uh, say that we were super happy that you used the research report format to communicate your findings. We really like this format in, in RAPM for a straightforward unitary message like yours, reporting safety data. At 600 words, two figures, and six references, it forces the writer to really nail down the key points uh, in terms of um, their message. And, and you, you guys did an awesome job at that. So congratulations. So let's get to your findings. Um, can you summarize the patient cohort in the, the key findings of the, of the study? Of course. Our study consists of 4,483 patients from November 2017 to January 2021. All of these patients were followed by our service 
and received lidocaine infusions on general care floors. Patients in the ICU were omitted. We abstracted from the electronic health record for 20% lipid emulsion administration as our marker for last treatment, as well as examine all sentinel events from this population. Out of our patient population of 4,483, one patient received lipid emulsion. Let, let, let's let's talk about that for a second. Um, the uh, the patient who had the uh, the presumably presumably had the last event. So by my calculation, um, that would be. Let's see. Um, so so by my calculation, the rate for peripheral nerve blocks has been cited as high as one point eight per thousand, and as low as 0. 0.04 per thousand. Um, so, so it certainly seems like, um, that would, you know, the rate that you're, you're presenting here, if that really was from your infusion is, is certainly, um, you know, like as safe as a peripheral nerve block. Is that, would that be your, your sense as well? That's, that's sort of our sense in terms of, in terms of the rate there. Um, we wanted to be forthright about, about everything that, that happened. It's sort of hard with a, with a single case to, to talk about it or discuss it. Um, but it's one of those cases where we've trained people if there's a suspicion, if lidocaine or uh, a local anesthetic is running and there's a suspicion or an arrest, you should give intralipid. And so that's, that's, that's really evidence that the pathway protocol for treatment of last is working, that this patient received um, intralipid. Um, in the event analysis, it wasn't certain whether this, is, this was lidocaine toxicity or not, but um, it's impossible to say that it wasn't or that it didn't contribute. And so I think the message is that this is a relatively safe therapy that you need to make sure have adequate safeguards, including training. Right. And, and, and that, I guess that a good segue to that is, um, you know, is, 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 is the question about whether or not you need monitor, monitoring when the infusion is occurring. And the only way this works, obviously, on the inpatient floor is if you don't have monitoring, because it's not going to happen otherwise. So did that event lead to any discussion or reflection that maybe that's something you would need? Or, um, you know, I'm always concerned about an event, even if it can't be definitively related to a protocol, could generate destruction of that protocol because of, um, you know, people's, you know, just emotions, if you will. So um, did anything like that happen or like where people were like, hey, we have to reflect on this. Maybe it's not as safe as we thought. We, we definitely have, um, have kind of a robust event analysis process that, that really analyzes um, any events like that. And it's not unfamiliar to us in anesthesia, this kind of um, process using the, the fishbone diagram and thinking about different um, avenues and things to, things to adjust. We think that the, the importance of this, uh, of, of controlling the, the infusions and being really safe with how you administer them is super important to making this an effective therapy. So Megan mentioned portless tubing. Um, we have had other issues where when you receive a bolus through an infusion line that has ketamine on it, someone has the effect of ketamine and um, that's perceived as, as um, loss of consciousness or altered mental status on the floor and things like that. And so those events, while not about lidocaine, um, make us reflect on how to how to do safer therapy. So gotcha. um, programming of pumps, maximum infusion rates, dual sign off by nurses when you initiate them, checking on patients early, uh, 
early vital sign checks are pretty important um, just to make sure you don't have initial pump programming errors and, and are definitely part of our process. The question a lot of the listeners will have is, you know, how is this drug working? And, you know, I, I, I reviewed a little bit of the literature before this, uh, for this podcast and, and this may not be completely accurate, but it looks like lidocaine has been studied the most in, in chronic neuropathic pain. And some of the acute pain applications uh, segue off of that. Uh, and it, it just appears to me that um, it's been, and I, I don't think anyone actually knows how systemic lidocaine actually works, but it seems like uh, there's the no- a notion that it is a really potent anti-inflammatory because all your kind of cytokine levels drop. Uh, it's a it's a anti um, you know hyperalgesic. There may be some neuromodulation going on, but but I'm curious to get your your thoughts on that. So we um, really exciting. One of our anesthesia colleagues at Vanderbilt um, are currently completing a pragmatic trial on the efficacy of our perioperative pain bundle and concentrating on the multimodals individually. So currently they are researching ketamine versus placebo, and our hope is to do the same with lidocaine as well. Okay. The problem when you're looking at a bundle of medications and you kind of implement them all at once is it's hard to parse what really had the effect. So we're really happy with pain control, analgesia outcomes, um, and we've published on those in the past, and, and length of stay, um, but we don't know what what heavy lifting is done by lidocaine, what by ketamine, what by other, by just opioid reduction from the lidocaine and ketamine in general. So to parse that, we really are going to try and do pragmatic trials, as Megan said, to, to um, in a blinded fashion, eliminate pieces of that, of that puzzle and then see how, how um, patients do, if it changes any of our, any of our outcomes. Pragmatic trials won't get at what the biological mechanism actually is. It's very, very difficult, you know, to, to figure that out. I, I think I saw some of those super interesting. Um, it, it had to do with um, the fact that when you're running a lidocaine infusion, I wish I had the reference for this, but when you're running a lidocaine infusion, when you stop the infusion, the analgesic effect lasts a lot longer than the half-life would predict which suggests this kind of neuromodulation aspect of it, which is what is, is incredibly interesting to me and, and really exciting. So m- maybe that's going on, but it's a little bit above my pay grade. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, it's fascinating to, to kind of take these pieces of the puzzle and, and try and put them together and, and um, produce an analgesic plan that really works for the patients. Um, it's it's hard to know what aspect is 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 helping, but um, but it's but it's really enjoyable to try and figure out the pieces of the puzzle to to get this therapy to be safe and on the floor. Um, you asked earlier about cardiac monitoring or increased monitoring on the floors, and um, a lot of studies have used lidocaine levels, have drawn lidocaine levels at various points, and um, that is associated with kind of increased hassle to the patients of, of lab draws and sleep disruption at four in the morning for lab checks and things like that for something that may not result for several hours. And then um, the number, even if it's, if it's low, if it's high, it doesn't seem to correlate in several studies that, that we've looked at, doesn't seem to correlate with um, symptoms, neurological symptoms of toxicity or things like that. And so a lot of places that are using 
lab levels to drive lidocaine therapy. To, to us, it just never seemed like that was that helpful or actionable information. Um, and there was a cost associated with it, both in, in, in um, expense and uh, patient disruption. Right. Uh, that's, a, that's a great point. I mean, you know, if the system is so complicated, it's going to defeat the whole purpose of the therapy. So I like how you've streamlined everything. And, and, uh, and I, I have to say, I think you definitely are trailblazers. I mean, if you're running ketamine and lidocaine infusions and everyone's bought in and it's all like, you know, normal day at the office, that's absolutely amazing. So, um, all right. Well, I think we've, we've kind of come to the, to, to the end. Uh, but what I, what I like to do is get each one of you, um, to just tell me if we're, you know, like the elevator speech. So if we're in an elevator and I know nothing about your project, uh, and you want to convince me that we, sh- I should, uh, uh, go through the process of getting it going at my institution. What do you want to, what do you want to tell me? Lidocaine infusion therapy is a is a really helpful analgesic uh, option for um, abdominal surgery patients that can improve their length of uh, stay and uh, be a substitute to opioids. Uh, when done safely, we can make that very inexpensive drug uh, safe to use in a very um, easy fashion for for our patients, uh, provided appropriate education and monitoring. Um, we can use lidocaine infusion therapy to improve uh, patient recovery from abdominal surgery. All right, Megan. Hey, you know what, actually, Megan, give us give us the the floor nursing perspective. Well, she's thinking. I'll say that we were terrified when we were starting lidocaine, and then when we were starting ketamine, we were terrified that everything under the sun um, was going to be blamed on those therapies, whichever one had just started. Like, right. patient has an itchy tongue. Um, that's gotta be the ketamine. Let's, right, right. let's stop it. It's like, it's like, it's the epidural phenomenon, right? So I once removed an epidural catheter from someone when I was, I was on for the weekend call because the primary team and the nursing team was so distracted by the epidural, they were missing like a, the fact that was a, the patient was having essentially a stroke and, um, and everything was a function of the epidural, which it wasn't. Uh, but it was in there. And I was concerned that they were so distracted that the best thing for the patient was to take the epidural out so they'd stop talking about it. <laughs> and it was it was remarkable. It's it's amazing. We were we were we were worried about that kind of culture that like something would be fixated upon and and blamed on the on the therapy, low blood pressure, high blood pressure, fast heart rate, <laughs> slow heart rate, all of it, you know, too, like too awake, too sleepy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Absolutely. All the things. Yeah. So Megan, I'm thinking, okay, so like, all right, let's say uh, in the, in the culture of like high dose opioids, PCA, um, you know, c- contrast that to uh, the new, the new world order of, of minimal opioids and infusions. Like what's that like? I mean, I think it just goes back to, you know, what we mentioned this, you know, uh, throughout this whole podcast is that, you know, clearly um, opioids um, are a problem here in the United States. And, you know, when relying on them solely to provide pain control in a hospital setting, you're going to have um, delayed return of bowel function, patients are not ambula- ambulating as they should, increased nausea and vomiting. Thus, a multimodal approach, including lidocaine and ketamine infusions, plus regional anesthesia and um, opioid sparing multimodals combined together, um, definitely gives a better overall experience for the patient, um, allowing them to ambulate um, earlier to um, have quicker return of bowel function, and then ultimately um, leaving the hospital sooner. 
Um, I would also like to say that I definitely think that, you know, if lidocaine infusions um, are systematically monitored as outlined in our protocol and they are ordered and managed um, by a service that has gone through thorough education and training related to lidocaine infusions and LAS, uh, we don't believe a heightened level of monitoring is necessary. With that, uh, we'll call it a wrap. So Megan and Brian, thanks so much for joining us. And thanks to all of you who listened in. Thank you for listening to the Rapham Focus podcast. Original music and production are done by Dan Langa. More information can be found at www.danlanga.com. We hope you'll join us in the future for more discussions with authors published in the Rapham Journal. And you can visit us at www.rapham.org.